sir, preach the word. How about if everybody says it one time on the count of three? One, two, three. Preach the word. Oh, we always want that, don't we? Want the Bible. All right. All right, let me get this thing where I like it. There we, that's good right there. Okay. You guys were here a couple weeks ago. Maybe you remember what this is about. If you remember what my sermon was about, um, and if you don't, don't feel bad. I normally can't remember on Monday or Tuesday, but that's okay. Uh, but if this is, uh, this is what we're going to be talking about today, is this little deal right here. And uh, so somebody who was here a couple of weeks ago, what is this? It's a throne. Okay, well, we'll get back to that in a minute. It's good to be home. We are thankful to be uh, coming home to Rudoso. What a great church family to come home to. I just, I love it. I love, I love coming back to the mountains. I love coming back to to Gateway, to our family, it feels like coming and sitting down in, in our living room. You know, you guys are family. And to get to be here with the kids this morning, jumping. Uh, if there's any of you who don't like that the kids jump, that's okay. You don't have to like everything we do here. Just be quiet about that, okay? Don't, don't say anything about that. <laughs> and, uh, and also, uh, you know, just, I, I just love the way people share their hearts here and that these guys are engaged in what we're doing today with Palm Sunday and, and trying to figure that out. We, some of us over there, uh, a couple of us figure out Palm Sunday is, you know, it's like a high five, right? Palms together. So that's what we did on our side. I want to thank Carl for preaching. Did a great job last week with Isaiah 6 and uh, talking about the king. And thank you to Russ for teaching class on Wednesday night. It's great to be able to leave and know that we have uh, good teachers, good preachers, good, good folks that are going to fill in these spots. I am so looking forward to this week uh, I didn't grow up this way. I grew up with kind of the week of Easter being nothing, uh, except maybe I thought we'd get a chocolate bunny or something, that's all. So, but it has grown in my heart and in my life over the years so that this is such a great week. And, and I know some people are like, well, we shouldn't make it any special because we need to remember Christ's resurrection uh, every week. And I would say, I disagree with you. We need to remember his resurrection every day, all right? 365, we need to remember Jesus' resurrection. But uh, there's nothing wrong with saying, we're going to celebrate on a day. You know, you might say this uh, to your wife. You know, hey, I celebrate us being married every day. Our anniversary is nothing. You know, we don't need to, we don't need to celebrate on our anniversary. That doesn't matter. I just celebrate it every day. Try that, guys. Give it a shot, okay? <laughs> See how that works. There's nothing wrong with celebrating a day. Now, if we did it like the Jews did as a law so that we could be accepted by God, then there's some texts in the Bible that speak to that. But for us to say this is a really special week for us to think about the last week of Jesus' life. And so that's why I'm excited about those Holy Week services that Wyatt mentioned at First Baptist Church. And I'll be planning to go to those on Wednesday and Thursday and, and hear some messages about the last week of Jesus' life. They have lunch there, too. That's a bonus. And they get you out by 1 o'clock so you can get back to work. And I'm also looking forward to going to this deal that Rod told you about, that we're going to go to Albuquerque. And uh, we're going we're gonna to go to Calvary Chapel. And they have a, they have a noontime uh, message about Good Friday. And so we're going to go attend that and go eat somewhere and watch a movie and just spend some time together. Guys, I'm bringing my son with me. So if you've got sons, they're out of school. And bring them along. You know, let's go. Let's have a great time remembering this last week of Jesus' life. Looking forward to next week, Easter. Now, look around. There's a bunch of people gone this week because it's spring break in Rudoso, and so everybody's been gone with their families, and a bunch of people are probably still out of town or resting up. But next week is Easter, and I, I read some stuff that said the 
number one, number one time when people who don't attend church are most likely to say yes to an invitation from you is on Easter Sunday. And that kind of surprised me. I thought it would have been Christmas, probably. I don't know why, but it's Easter Sunday. So do you have a neighbor who doesn't attend church anywhere or maybe who doesn't even know Christ? You have a coworker, you have a friend, a family member. Invite them to church next week. Let's explode the, explode the doors off this place with invitations. And uh, so I, I hope you'll plan to do that. Hope you'll, you'll bring a friend next week because it's Easter Sunday. What is Easter all about? Well, it's about those historical events that we know are fact 2,000 plus years ago that Jesus Christ, he died, the scriptures say he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he raised from the dead. 500 eyewitnesses looked with their eyeballs at this guy after he raised from the dead. But Easter is also about something personal, as I mentioned last couple of weeks ago. It's about a question, a very personal question, and that is, who is king? And more precisely, who is your king? Who's your king of your life? <laughs> who said that? Way to go, Ariel. Did you guys hear that? Say it one more time. All right. I love that. Uh, that was not prompted. Thank you, Ariel. That's hopefully what's leaping out of all of our hearts. And we're, we're looking at Psalm chapter 2. If you got your Bible and you want to open up to Psalm chapter 2 today, we're going to be looking at a few verses there to, to kind of examine our hearts and think about that question. A couple of weeks ago, um, we talked about that there is a king and that God gives us free will. He gives you one of these a throne. And he says, you get to choose. I'll let you choose who sits on the throne of your life and makes the decisions for your life. And we talked about some of the things that people do choose to put there that can poison, destroy their lives. But whether you choose to let Jesus sit on this throne of your life or not, he still, Psalm chapter 2 says, is the king of the whole universe. He's the king of all of the world. And we talked about how we love these stories of good kings and that, they, that we're longing for a good king to come back. Even though we don't have a king in our country, we still love those kind of stories. And the people in Jerusalem that day over 2,000 years ago, boy, did they ever love the story of a king. As you've already heard some about Palm Sunday, they went out in front of Jesus on this colt or on this small donkey and they laid down these palms they laid down their coats as well and 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 just like mike uh, there's a couple other things that i kind of looked at as far as scriptures that connect in the old testament that these people that are tearing down tom palms and they're and they're laying them down they would have been thinking about some scriptures they knew the scriptures in the old testament psalm 92 says though the wicked spring up like grass the righteous are going to flourish flourish like a palm tree. Palms represented life, eternal life, because it said they're going to bear fruit even in their old age. They're going to be fresh and green. They're going to go on, go on living and living and living. And so palms represented this idea of eternal life. In Leviticus 23, 
they also represented that everything's going to get better. Everything's going to get better than it is today. Because in Leviticus 23, verse 40, the Israelites were commanded at the Feast of Tabernacles, which remembered and commemorated their 40 years of wandering in the desert. They were commanded to shake these palms, to wave these palms as an expression of joy that things are going to get better. Yeah, we've had time in the wilderness, but things are going to get better because we have a God that we serve. And they tear these palms down thinking about these scriptures. They also have history, just like you and I know some American history, and we know you know, who George Washington is, and we know about the Boston Tea Party, and we know about different things like that in our American history from days gone by. Well, they knew their history as Jews. And they knew from Maccabees, actually from uh, uh, some books that we still have, Second Maccabees, they knew about this man named Maccabee who revolted 150 years before Jesus shows up, and he defeats the Syrians who have desecrated the temple And he takes back the temple, and he takes back Jerusalem for the Jews. And when that happened, they waved palm branches, and they sang psalms of victory. And so palm branches also had to do with overcoming your enemies with victory. Well, what does all this add up to? What does it all add up to? What are they saying to Jesus? They're saying, we have an expectation, Jesus. We're laying these down, and we expect something from you. We expect that you're going to be new. You're going to give us something better. You're going to bring victory over the Romans. Most of the people who are laying these down, that's what they're thinking. Jesus, we got an expectation. You're the king. And this is a little weird that you're riding in on this donkey. Some of them probably knew that that, uh, Old Testament scripture, but he should have been riding in on some big horse as the king. But, but still, you're the king, and we're going to lay down these branches because we expect new, better, life-giving, victorious-type things from you. Here's the deal. In our own lives, we expect something from this right here. This throne, whatever we decide to put in this throne of our life, we have expectations. Maybe when we're young, We put on this throne pleasure or popularity. But when this king doesn't deliver, when it doesn't come through the way we thought it would, and we serve this king for a little while of pleasure and popularity, and it just doesn't doesn't have the payoff. And so what do we do? The failure of those expectations makes us replace this king. We say, oh, well, that was when I was young, pleasure and popularity. But now I've learned. I'm older. And so we set a different king down oftentimes on this here. Maybe we set down the king of our job, making good money, starting a family, having some children. That's what I'll serve. That's what will bring me what I want. That's what's going to give me these expectations I have in my life. And on and on it goes, searching for a king to sit in this place that's going to meet our expectations. Because we all have them. There's something we want, and it doesn't always look like what we want, the king that's sitting here. I like the story I heard about little Freddy. He runs into the kitchen. He comes running in, and he's, he's holding something in his hands. Mommy, mommy, my turtle, my turtle died. Oh, the mom, she comforts him, and, and uh, she, she kisses him on the head, and she says, listen, sweetie, it's okay, it's okay. 
These things happen. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll wrap him up in a box and put some tissue paper around him. We'll have a little funeral, and, and uh, we'll have a nice burial in the backyard. And after that, you know, she thought, I want to I help, you know, my son deal with death and not be so sad. And so she said, after that, we'll go get some ice cream, and, and, and then you could even get a new pet. And boy, he got excited all of a sudden. He was like, now this is sounding a little better. And about that time, the turtle moved. And the mom said, oh, Freddie, your turtle's not dead. And he said, well, I'll kill him. <laughs> Why is that? Because he had, all of a sudden he had an expectation that he wants. He wants something. And now whatever you got to do to go through and get it. It's the same thing with us. We're so fickle. We're so ready to change the plan of whoever sits here to get what we expect, to get what we want in life. And it was the same for the people in Jerusalem that day. Oh, they did. They cried out, Hosanna. And, and blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. And, and, and you're the king. They even said those words, you're the king, John records. They said those things. But boy, were they fickle. Because they're the same people a few days later who are going to be crying out, crucify. Crucify. Why? The same reason as us. He did not meet their expectations why is he so humble? He's supposed to be a king coming in and taking over the Romans. Why is he so demanding? I mean, you listen to his teaching and he asked for everything. He did not meet their expectations. He made a small ruckus in the temple after he came into town. He bantered a little bit with the Jewish leaders, but nothing spectacular to rally, rally the people and overthrow the Romans. And they are so, so, so disappointed with their king that they have laid their palm branches down for. And so Psalm chapter 2. If you're there, Psalm chapter 2. Last time we actually looked ahead at verses 4 through 9. And like I said, basically verses 4 through 9 say, there is a king. He is an awesome, awesome king of the whole world. And we're going to back up to verses 1 through 3 today. Because there is a king. That's true. That's a truth. But here's the point for today. We hate the king. We hate the king. Listen to Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against the anointed one. Let us break the chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Notice the verbs in these three verses that we're looking at today. The people say, there's the king. Let's conspire against him. Let's plot against him. Let's take a stand against the king. Let's break the chains. Let's throw off the fetters of the king. Why? Why do they want to do that? Because we hate the king. I'm going to give you two reasons why we hate the king. Some of you don't believe me, and you don't like me saying that. But I'm going to give you two reasons why we hate kings in general. First of all, we hate kings because just about all the kings we know about in history are somewhere between bad and a nightmare, most of them. There are a few exceptions. But even as we look in the Bible, and we look at all the kings that God placed over Israel, there's approximately 40, give or take. And only seven of them get 
Every one of them in the Bible says, and this person served as a king for this long, and he did right in the eyes of the Lord, or he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And all but seven says they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's not a very good track record. Less than 25% did good in the eyes of the Lord. You can read about in Jeremiah 52, if you want to have some nice, quiet bedtime reading uh, that'll really just make your heart, you know, warm and fuzzy. Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 11, is right at the end, the very end of the history of Israel. And the king of Babylon chases King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah is the king of, of Israel. I'm sorry, Judah, king of Judah. And, and this king chases him down. He captures him. He kills his sons right in front of his eyes. Then he gouges his eyes out right after he kills his sons. And he takes him to slavery in Babylon until his death. We know King Herod in the New Testament, famous for being a child lover. Maybe not. A baby killer. Killed the children under two. Famous kings, I thought about telling you stories about this, but you, can, you all have Wikipedia, you can look yourself, you know, uh, or go do some, some research. But you guys remember some of these stories, some of you who like history, and some of the horrible things that Alexander the Great and King Tut and Henry VIII and Caligula, these are some horrible, horrible things that kings did to people, to the people that were their subjects. And we can look right in the Bible. This is the one I just want to talk to you about for a few minutes. In the book of Esther, what's the king's name? You remember? Xerxes. That's a cool name. I like that name. Uh, my name's just plain old John. If I could have chosen a different one, I might have gone for Xerxes. Not, not really, because he's not a very good guy, okay? Xerxes is the king of Persia. He's the king of Persia. He's the son of Darius. He grows up a prince. He's got all of the privileges of a prince, and he becomes the king of Persia when he's in his mid-30s. This is what he thought of himself. He thought he was a god. He thought he was a man who had become a god and that he was sitting on his throne in this great city of Susa. And archaeology has found some of his writings. And this is one of the things that King Xerxes wrote. Listen to this. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages I am the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. Wow. Talk about a complex. That guy, needs to, that guy needs to go to counseling, all right? That guy's got some problems. This is what he has come to think of himself. He's, he's most famous in history for his invasion into the Greek mainland when he took one, get this, one million soldiers to invade Greece. And you know the famous battle uh, of Sparta and the, the warriors who tried to stand against those million soldiers that came. But in the book of Esther, in chapter 1, we find some things about King Xerxes and some of the things that he did. Listen, listen to this. He declared a six-month holiday. How would you like it if our president did that? If he just said, you know what? I'm going to say uh, six months, everybody's off work, you know, 
And, uh, and anyways, I, I better, I, I, that's not in my notes, and I better just move on. I thought of some things I could say right there, and I'm just going to move on right now. Okay, so a six-month holiday, specifically, he made that for the military, and he made it for the politicians. And he said, you guys get six months off. And the Bible says that he did that to display the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory, listen to this, the splendor and glory of his majesty. That's why he did that. He wanted everybody to come and see how glorious, how much splendor he had, holding himself up. And at the end of that six-month vacation, he throws a one-week party, seven-day party. That's a long party, all right? And it's in the palace. It's in the king's palace. And you can read about it in Esther chapter 1. But let me just tell you a couple of things about it. He has these hanging gardens. He has white linen and purple material all around, which, by the way, are very, very, very expensive. You don't have that in this time. He has silver. These these, uh, materials are hanging on silver rings on marble pillars. He's got couches of gold and silver. Now, the Bible doesn't make crystal clear whether it's talking about the color or actually gold and silver. But listening to what this guy had, it's possible. I'm just hanging out on the gold couch today. One of the seven days of the party, this is where I'm sitting today, is on the gold couch. The pavement in the palace was made of marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. That's what they walked on in the palace. They drank from goblets of gold. And it says that the wine that he served was the royal wine. So you, you got wine, you know, and then you got like a little more expensive wine, but this is royal wine. We're not talking about like two buck chuck, okay? Or the box of uh, whatever that stuff's called. I can't remember what it's called. You know what I'm talking about, the box stuff? Okay, we're talking not about that stuff. We're talking about the best of the best of the best wine. And he's serving it for seven days to the whole city of Susa. And he has some rules about drinking. And if you're going to have a party for seven days, and you're going to open it up, you're going to have an open bar for seven days, you need to have some rules, all right? And here's the rules he gave. Serve each man anything he wants. That's his rules. This is a bad idea, okay? I mean, if you're going to have like a wedding or something, and you're thinking about, oh, we're going to have an open bar, don't. Don't do that, okay? Bad things happen. Uh, you know, you, some of you are like, yeah, I've been to some of those weddings, and we still can't find our cousin. You know, we're not sure where he's at. So, so don't do that, all right? That's what he does. King Xerxes is like, I'm opening up the bar, and we're having seven days for the whole city of Susa to come, and we're having a party right here. And on the seventh day, they might have had a few, okay? Might be a little inebriated. He's probably so. His inhibitions lowered. He shows his true colors by commanding his wife to be paraded in front of all the the drunk men of the city. To show her off, he's using women to display his splendor and glory. Look how great I am. Look at my wife. And you know the story. She refuses to come, and then we get into the whole story of Esther and how how she was a big part of saving the Jewish people. This is a horrible king, but it shouldn't surprise us. It's why we hate kings. Kings, kings are people. Kings are men or queens or women, and, and they're fallible. They're selfish. You guys know this quote, power corrupts, and absolute power, what? Corrupts absolutely. So anytime there was a good king, they overcame the odds. 
That's the first reason we hate kings. There's a second reason we hate kings. And we find it here in Psalm chapter 2. In verse 3, let us, the kings of the earth, say about this new king that's coming in, let us break the chains. Let us throw off the fetters. Probably a better translation would be the word yoke than fetters. It's not like they're chained and, and they're prisoners. It's like they're yoked. It's like, what do, you, what do you do? You yoke together something that you own, oxen or a horse, or you yoke these together. See, that's the problem. The reason we hate kings is because we don't want to be owned. We don't want to be owned by anybody. Get that yoke off me. I want to be in charge, my own destiny. I want to be in control of my own decisions. But verse 3 teaches us that the natural, the natural heart, listen to me close, the natural heart of every human being is that we hate kings. We just don't want to be owned. We don't want to be beholding to our creator. And that's why in the New Testament, Paul had to write to the Corinthians in chapter 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You belong to somebody else. You don't belong to yourself. George MacDonald was a great author who inspired C.S. Lewis. And one of the things he wrote was he said that there's a central conviction of every person in hell. And here it is. I am my own. He's saying every person who goes to hell says, I am my own. And as a matter of fact, not only people who go to hell, but the way we create hell in our lives is to say, I'm my own. I am the one who's sitting here. I make all my own decisions. That creates a hell on earth. The famous poem, I'm a master of my fate. I am the captain of my own soul. Every human being feels this. And we don't have to teach anybody to feel this. Anybody got any children? You know it. We, some of them come out of the womb, and if not, within a couple of years, they're saying, no, I want to do things my way. I want to sit in this chair. I want to be the king. And I hate you, mom and dad, being the king of my life. Not necessarily I hate you as a person, but I hate that you're the king of my life. I want to be the king of my life. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, and it was titled, Men Naturally God's Enemies. Naturally, that's what we are. We're God's enemies. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, The natural mind is enmity or against or hostile to God. And so it's not that we just don't believe in God. It's that we hate the king. We hate the idea that he is ruling. He is ruling. But there is a true king. There is a true king. Somebody wrote a sermon one time uh, back in the 18th century and it ended with these words, if only virtue incarnate would appear on earth, we would bow down and worship. If only virtue incarnate would appear. But that's a really stupid ending to a sermon because virtue incarnate did appear on this earth. And what did we do? We killed him. We whipped him. We beat him. We nailed him to a cross. Why? Get that yoke off of me. You're not meeting my expectations. This is too hard. 
This is not what we expected. This is not what we want. Some of you, as you hear this and you hear me saying these words, and there's a little bit of this I'm saying to try to help you listen today when I say we hate kings. Some of you are going, I don't know about that. I don't know if we hate kings. I don't like that you're saying that. Some people say, well, now, wait a second. Everybody, you know, believes in God, and everybody doesn't hate God and hate the king. But see, there, there's been studies done. Somebody in the last five years did a study uh, in America and said, you know, you know what? We, we're 90% of the people in America believe in God. There's only a small amount that say, I don't even believe in God. But it's not true. It's not true that 90% of the people in America believe in God. Everyone believes in the idea of a God. That's a good idea. We like that idea as long as we can make him be the way we want him to be. But when you start saying, like Psalm chapter 2 says in verses 4 through 9, this God laughs, this God scoffs, this God rebukes, this God terrifies, this God rules over people, this God, we belong to him, we are his possession People are like, oh, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in a God of love, all right? And I do, too, all right? I'm with those people. I believe in a God of love, too. But I believe in the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not something we created. The God of the Bible has a lot of different facets. And most people don't believe in the God of the Bible. Well, maybe you would say to me, what about you, John? I mean, you're saying people hate the king. Do you hate the king? Let me start by saying this. I love the king. I love King Jesus. But I got to be honest and tell you, there are times in my life when I hate that he's telling me what to do. I don't want to do what he wants me to do. I don't. I don't want to do it. And so on some level... Yeah, I kind of hate that he is the king. I wish there was some other option. And actually what we find out is there is another option. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we have a couple options. We can be a slave, which means we have a king. We can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or we can be a slave to righteousness or to the king, Jesus, which leads to life. So we do have two options. So I could choose the other one, but I'm just being honest. I'm trying to be vulnerable and tell you sometimes I don't want to do what Jesus tells me to do. He tells me to forgive, and I'm like, I don't want to forgive. That person deserves. He tells me to love, and I'm like, I don't want to love. I want to be selfish. I want to go do what I want to do. I mean, I want to do the idea of love, but I don't want to really do the hard work of loving somebody. Here's the deal. If we can admit that we're naturally at enmity with God, that we're enemies of God. You know what that shows? It shows that we actually believe in the God of the Bible. That's what it shows. That we do have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that we're Christians, if we can admit this. And it's not normally the popular thing at church. The popular thing at church is, let's be good. Let me give you three steps to serve the king. These three ways, if you do these three things, you'll be a good person, and then you'll love the king. That's what we normally want to talk about. Give me three steps to be a good person. But the message of the gospel is, you're not a good person. You're not. Do all three steps. You're still not a good person. You need Jesus the king to die on the cross for you. That's your only hope. 
things inside of us just buck against that. It's hard for us. Non-believers. Non-believers would say this. I'm a good person. I mean, I do things good, okay? I'm probably God's friend. I mess up, but I'm, I'm better than most people. I do a lot of good things in the world, and he really, I do enough, he should let me into heaven. That's what non-believers say. Christians understand that's not the message of the Bible. Christians understand I'm a sinner, I'm God's enemy, and nothing I do is ever going to be enough for me to step across the door into heaven. But I trust, I trust in his sacrifice, I trust in the work that he did that's what I'm going to wear as my righteousness. His work on the cross and his resurrection, that's going to be what I wear when I stand before God. It'll be a free gift on that day. So it's good to admit that we have this natural inclination. We have this temptation to hate the king because that's the bad news of the Bible. And it leads us to the good news. And the good news is that there actually is one good king. And you know who he is. His name is Jesus. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes was a man who believed he became God. Jesus is God who became man for us. Xerxes never tasted poverty or humility. God, Jesus, tasted both so he could identify with us. Xerxes used his power so that he could abuse women. Jesus used his power to honor women. Xerxes spent his whole life being served by other people. Jesus used his power to serve everyone around him. Xerxes killed his enemy, his enemies with armies of millions. Jesus died for his enemies to save billions. Xerxes sits on a throne in Susa when he was alive. Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes, the most powerful man on earth, Jesus made the earth. Xerxes made a big feast that lasted a whole week, a huge party. Doesn't even begin to compare with the feast that Jesus is making for us. Xerxes died, and no one worships him, and no one names their kid Xerxes. We might name our dog Xerxes, maybe. Jesus conquered death, and billions worship him. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end. Jesus' kingdom has no end. Xerxes declared himself king, but he died. And guess who he stood before? The king of kings and the lord of lords and the alpha and the omega, King Jesus. He is a good, good king. And so today, instead of laying down palms, because it doesn't really make any sense for our culture anyways, we don't even know what it means hardly, we're struggling to figure it out. Instead of that, how about if you and I come to this good king and we say, I trust him, I believe he really is good, and if he sits here, my life, even though I don't like it sometimes, will be awesome. What if we came and laid down our pride? What if we came and laid down our sin? What if we came today and we laid down even our good deeds and our righteous acts and we just laid them down at the feet of king jesus how about that i gotta sing this song because i need to remember 
to ask Jesus over and over. It's not a one-time thing. For those of you who say, well, I asked Jesus into my heart, and that was the day I was saved, or some of you who say, no, it was the day I was baptized, that's the day I was saved. Whatever you say, okay, about the day, this is the day I was saved. This is the day Jesus sat down on the throne of my heart. Guess what? You don't just do it once. You got to do it over and over and over in every season, sometimes every day. We got to say, Lord, reign in me again. Please, Lord, reign in me. Let's stand. Let's work.